Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgasa. Today's guest is Mr. Robert Pacellio, an award-winning retired school teacher and writer. Robert is an only child who was born in 1955 into an Italian-American family in East New York, a tough, poorer part of Brooklyn. His father, Louis Pacellio, was a jack of all trades and a master of some. <laughs> and his only ambition for, his, for Robert was that he grow up to become a lawyer in order to make good money. Robert's mother, Tessie Pacellio, was a stay-at-home mom who never drove a car until she absolutely had to. They were Italians, in Robert's own words, who, and I quote, loved to talk, loved me, and loved their grandchildren, end of quotations. When Robert won the San Diego County Teacher of the Year in 1998, his father said, Cheese, Tacey, is on TV. <laughs> his mother I told you, Louis, he was supposed to be a teacher, <laughs> not a lawyer. Robert Pacellio is the first in his family to go to university. He is a graduate of California State University and holds a master's degree in education. Robert took up his place at Mount Carmel High School, a public high school in San Diego, California, where he taught English for 32 years. Upon retiring from teaching, Robert took up writing, publishing five novels whose collective theme is the ups and downs of a school teacher in the American public school system. His latest work is a memoir entitled it was never about the books, a study, and I quote, about a teacher's influence and my students' remarkable journeys. Robert, until 2018, was an adjunct professor at the National University in San Diego, California, specializing in preparing secondary school teachers to step into the classroom. He now divides his time between writing, advocating for support for teachers in public schools, and speaking at conferences. In this episode, we discuss the topic, the unexpected butterfly effect of a great teacher. Mr. Robert Pacellio, welcome. Well, thank you, Stephen. And by the way, that was a pretty good rendition of my mother and father and their Brooklyn accents uh, from a um, from a professor uh, of, of your status. Um, you just needed a little bit more of the New York, you know, cup of coffee kind of thing, you know. But uh, my father would say that your that your accent was tremongous. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, I, I should point out that to my father often that tremongous was not a word. And he said, what are you talking about? It's just bigger than humongous. It's tremongous. This, this gentleman is talking to you all the way from, you know, Taiwan, for crying out loud. That's tremongous. So that's that's kind of the flair of my father. 
Thank you. You are an only child who was born into an Italian-American family in East New York. Your father, Louis Pacellio, was a jack of all trades and a master son. And his only ambition for you as his only son was that you grow up to become a lawyer in order to make good money. Robert, please share with us what it was like to be the only son brought up in an Italian immigrant community. And how did your childhood experience growing up in a tough, poor part of Brooklyn color your appreciation of life as an adult? Well, I, I should begin, Stephen, by telling you that um, my parents wanted to have more children, but it was just not biologically ha happening. And uh, all of I have, a, I had uh, on my mother's side, I had seven uncles and aunts and my father's side, I had another uncle and, and everybody had a lot of kids. I had tons of cousins. So it was very unusual for me to be an only child. Um, and um, we, we were, this goes under the category of how poor were we? <laughs> we were so poor that we lived in the, um, in the attic of my grandfather's uh, and grandmother's house in Brooklyn. And, uh, and finally, because uh, my dad was in the Navy, finally my parents scrabbled enough money together to move uh, to what they was what they thought was a better neighborhood. They moved to Lodi, New Jersey. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't such a great move, but you know, it, at least they had their own home, and and I uh, and that therefore I became a Jersey guy. Um, one day, my father slipped on the ice, and he just said, "That's it, Tessie. We're getting out of here. It's too freaking cold. I can't stand it. We're gonna go to California." And that was in 1964. And to show the kind of uh, gumption my parents had, they put everything they had in a 1960 Rambler and drove seven days and seven nights, always stopping at a hotel with a pool until we got to California. And my father did not have a job. He had enough money to just get us through 30 days. And if he couldn't find a job in 30 days, we had to go home. And uh, you talk about pressure. Um but he did. He, he, he got a little close. I mean, he was down to day number 22, I think, when my father you know, came home and said, I got a job. And, uh, and my mother and I cheered. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, at least that was, that was how we, we landed all the way across the country. Um, uh, so it was interesting because I was an Italian kid who, had, who you know, grew up in the New York and Brooklyn area. But here I was all the way in uh, East, uh, East L.A., and now what would be predominantly a Mexican-American neighborhood. Most of the Mexican-American kids called me Pachilio. Uh, they didn't get the Pachilio thing. And, uh, you know, uh, but I told them, I said, hey, you know, I'm a minority just like you. You know, we're going to get along great. And, uh, and as long as my, my, uh, my, the kids who were on my teams came over to the house and my mom made lasagna, they were really happy. So... Uh, you know, it was it was a different experience being 3000 miles away from my hometown. But now, California, I mean, I've been here since 1964 and I've been down here in San Diego uh, when I moved here in 1977. And I I'm as close to a native San Diegan as they come. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> Thank you. In the first chapter of It Was Never About the Books, you write and I quote. 
I taught high school from 1977 to 2010. For every one of those 32 years, I loved what I was doing. Teaching, for me, was a passion, end of quotations. Robert, in a language an ordinary man in the street would understand, kindly define for us what you mean by teaching. Hmm. Well, um, you know, I was often asked, what do you teach? And I said, would answer, uh, as I did on many occasions to um, many audiences, I teach invisible things. And of course, that would get a quizzical look from uh, the audience, as it did from you. And uh, they would say, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, my job is to teach kids uh, courage and compassion and tolerance and wisdom and to teach them that they can accomplish great things if they set their mind to it. That I came from nothing. Um, my parents did not go to college. They, they arguably graduated from high school. Um, and, you know, they couldn't really help me with homework. Um, they, all they did was, you know, make sure I was safe and make sure I could, you know, go to, go to school and, and learn. And of course, as you already said, my father wanted me to be a lawyer and make good money. But, um, but I knew that my job, sure, it was to teach English or history, but None of that would matter if I didn't teach them, um, in the words of Atticus Finch, the main character to Kill a Mockingbird, if I didn't teach them what it means to step into somebody else's shoes and understand their life, their human condition, that's why you go to school. And you're going to forget, you're going to forget a lot of the things I say. You're not going to remember all the characters and all the themes and all the stories or even all the songs. But I want you to remember that the most important skill that a school, any teacher would teach you is to think for yourself and to apply yourself and to show some grit. And I guess if, if I were to say to anyone, what did you do as a teacher? What, what, how do you teach? What do you teach? You teach kids and you teach them to empower themselves. Again, in the first chapter, you write, and I quote, A school's wall has this message inscribed. Some teachers teach the curriculum. Some teachers teach the students. There is a difference. Mm -hmm. There is. In three lines, this message summed up everything I have ever had to say on the subject of teaching, end of quotations. Robert, Please talk us through what you mean by this message summed up everything I have ever had to say on the subject of teaching. And what is the purpose of teaching? Well, it sums up everything because when I would watch teachers, there were some teachers who would stand behind a podium and they would tell you where all the battles were in World War I and make the kids memorize the date of those battles. Um, or... They would, um, they would, they would want to love the kids and embrace the kids, but often didn't, you know, they really didn't know the, know the curriculum that well. I mean, they were, you know, they were just, they were not well-read or they were not, you know, particularly, um, 
They weren't particularly interested in creating uh, uh, critical thinkers. They were just, you know, there to, to, to hug the kids and love them. And those two types of teachers fail. Um, one, because they, they don't connect to the kids at all, or they connect, but they don't teach them anything. My belief, and I read that, that particular saying that you talked about, my belief is that those two things, teaching the curriculum and teaching to the kids, those things are not mutually exclusive. That your job as a teacher is you teach two kids and you get them to, to love what you're teaching them, the curriculum, and to, and to also um, find that they're on your team, that they're with you 100%. And when, you, when they're with you and they know that you love the curriculum, they're going to love the curriculum as well. And the book, it was never, the, book, the memoir I wrote, it was never about the books. Um, it kind of speaks to that. Because most of the kids will, will remember uh, uh, one particular song or one particular story or one particular novel or a play I taught. But over and all over, the major message they would say to me was, Mr. Pachilio, I remember you. I remember that you cared that if we didn't do our work, didn't do our homework, you would ask us why. And you, you wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, you explained to us that you've taught kids that are homeless. You've taught kids that parents are alcoholic. You've taught kids that are going, parents are going through a divorce. You've taught kids who can't read. And none of those reasons are reasons why you can't get on the, get on the train with me and have a, have a better future for yourself. And, and, and in, in doing that with kids and looking them square in the eye and saying, come on, you know, I, you, the good Lord put you in my class and there's a reason and you just need to hang on to the train because I'm going to take you someplace that you've never been before. And it's that message that uh, matters, that and making sure you know what it is you're teaching, whether it's grammar, Shakespeare, um, the Vietnam War, you, you really need to know your content and, um, and so you have to be able to do both. You have to connect to kids and you have to love your content. In chapter four of your book, entitled Jim, open brackets, Blood Brothers, you mm -hmm. write and I quote, as I gave him, that is Jim, a brief tour of my classroom, I pointed out the trophies that my speech and the debate team had won and I refer to the main rule of my class. I am right, and don't argue with a debate coach. <laughs> I had much to learn about the art of being a teacher, namely, mm -hmm. that respect was not demanded, it needed to be and, end of quotations. Right. right. You Robert, know that, go ahead, I'm sorry. Please, Talk to us about your student, Jim. Mm -hmm. And at what point in your teaching career did you appreciate that respect was earned and mm -hmm. not demanded? Well, when I wrote the memoir, I wanted to have Jim, uh, the, the, that particular student, early on in the memoir, because that's when I was really a young teacher. Stephen, I had a full head of hair. I had a mustache and, you know, 
and I, I was all of 22, 23 years of age. And, and Jim was only seven years younger than I was. He was 14, 15. Um, and, uh, in those days you would say to kids, I'm right. Don't argue with me. And I wanted to put that in the book because as young teachers, we make a lot of mistakes and we, um, we're, uh, we, we put up a, a, a great shield. You know, some people, the old saying is, don't smile when you're a young teacher until Thanksgiving, uh, which I never followed that rule. But um, so uh, when I was saying to Jim, you know, don't argue with me, I, I was wrong. I learned, uh, I learned as I, as I went through being Bob Pachilio phase one to phase two to phase three, that, that I needed to shut up and listen to them. Um, that uh, they, they, they often had, a, you know, they had a lot to say and, and I was wrong. Um, and I, I remember, uh, here's one little, little story I didn't put in the book. I remember a parent calling me uh, about their, their daughter and she was, the daughter was upset. And I have to be honest with you, I didn't have a whole lot of parent conferences that were um, contentious. I mean, generally speaking, you know, it, it was kind of kind of a love fest between me and the parents. But this parent was, was concerned. So she came into my room and she sat down with her daughter. And I said, the first thing I need to tell you is that you're right and I'm wrong. And that your daughter is right and that I was mistaken and that I apologize. As soon as I did that, the mother broke into a smile. That you could see the relief on the daughter's shoulders. And I said, you know, ma'am, <laughs> I make about 150 decisions a day. And, and sometimes I just, teachers, we just make the wrong decision. You don't even, we don't realize how hurtful we can be or how, if not hurtful, maybe dismissive we can be. And, um, and this is my opportunity to sit down with the two of you and say, I blew it and it won't happen again. Um, and uh, I know too many teachers that would never have done that. You know, they would just put their, they would get their hackles up and they would argue and they would, you know, no, 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 no. And um, this was a really good kid. She was a very good student. You know, obviously I was at fault. Um, and so um, with, when, when I had Jim as a student, uh, he was so young. I was so young. But as the chapter un unravels itself, I was a beginning speech and debate coach. And I, you know, I had a, there was no program at the school at all. Uh, I was it. I had a started from scratch. And, um, uh, and Jim was one of the very first kids I recruited. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, we, we, um, I took him up with my parent to, to my parents' house because I was going to uh, run an institute in, in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, he was going to be one of the students I take with me. And that's how we met my parents and lo my parents loved him and we went to his wedding and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, uh, my relationship with Jim lasted and has lasted for five decades. I'm 67 right now. Jim is 60. Um, he took me to dinner right as this book was published and said, I don't need to read the chapter, Bob. I already know the chapter. And I'm very, um, I'm flattered that you would include me in it. We, we grew up together, he and I, um, and uh, he taught me a great many lessons as I taught him. Um, 
and as it, as it, as it sits today, he is uh, in a leadership position and is always talking about, you know, how I taught him to speak, how I taught him to listen, how I taught him to, you know, to take careful notes. And uh, those are all the things that, you know, you put up on your little, in your little scrapbook of, of, you know, why, why you made a difference uh, as a teacher. I'm hoping I'm answering your questions. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Chapter five of your book is entitled Gretchen, mm. open brackets, the kid made my day. And you write this, and I quote, I felt like teachers were being put under the microscope while simultaneously being asked to take care of students' academic needs, social education, and well-being, mental health and physical safety, among other things, or with very little pay, very little respect, end of quotations. Mm-hmm. Robert, the trials and tribulations of life as a teacher are well documented enough to be rehearsed here. But in light of this quotation, could you please talk to us about the challenges of, te- of the teaching profession in a highly polarized political climate that is sweeping across the United States of America today and Western democracies? Well, we, we've opened up a, ba- a can of worms there, Stephen. Um, first of all, I should tell you that the quotation that you read was actually the words of Gretchen, uh, who was um, who was a teacher, uh, and she felt all of those pressures, and it was overwhelming to her. And she, uh, you know, eventually had twins and stepped out of the classroom, and then uh, then came back as a substitute teacher, and and. I wanted to have her in my in my memoir because um, I didn't want to paint the picture that teaching is all rosy because you know Gretchen Gretchen had it rough. Um, she she felt all of those pressures, of having you know all those kids and all their concerns and their parents' pressure and and then the polarization, as you said, um, you know, having to you know. Watch what watch what you say. Uh, I should explain that when I when I retired in 2010, Barack Obama had just been elected in, in 2009. So I did not teach in the Trump era when when things became, um, for lack of a better <laughs> for lack of a better word, pretty crazy around here. Um, uh, so I didn't have to. Um, walk the line. I didn't, I could, I could tell, I could tell the truth to kids. You know, I would say to kids, this is what the Jim Crow laws were. This is why, why Brown versus the board of education was significantly important. You know, here, here is why, um, uh, James Meredith was the first black man to attend the university of Mississippi. I could go into all those places and teach them the truth and not have to worry about someone saying, well, why, why are you teaching all this woke stuff? Um, so um, uh, when I talk to teachers now, I, I feel for them because I think they're being pressured by the administration to, um, to walk things back. I, I've had a number of conversations with teachers uh, who have said they've been, they're, 
the, the administration and superintendents are trying to intimidate them to not teach to kill a mockingbird, which is the um, most important American um, novel, I think, you know, after Huckleberry Finn. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, it totally captures everything that, that America is really dealing with today. And, um, and Atticus Finch in survey after survey after survey is considered the most admirable man in literature, in American literature. So I say to them, you know, um, in order, what you need to do before you even teach the book is you need to tell your kids how important, who, who, who really loved this book? You know, Barack Obama loved this book and, uh, and, and, and John McCain loved this book, and people of every political persuasion love this book. It's what the most love American book. And um, this isn't a Republican book. This isn't a Democrat book. This is a book about the human condition. And, and it's about the South. And it's about why there was a civil war. And we can't pretend it didn't exist. Um, I will leave this question with one with one little anecdote that I didn't put in the book, but I think it really helps answer your question. At the very end of my career, an Asian uh, young man came up to me. His name was Andrew. Still, I remember this like it was yesterday. And he was very bright. This was in my honors freshman English class. And he waited till all the kids were gone. And he said, Mr. Pichileo, can I ask you a question? And I said, Andrew, I live for your questions. And he said, Mr. Pichilio, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And I smiled. I said, Andrew, oh my goodness. You know, that's the, one of the best things you could ever ask me. And he goes, really? I go, yes, I'm so flattered that you'd ask me that. Why are you flattered, Mr. Pichilio? I'm flattered, Andrew, because you, you don't know the answer, do you? And he goes, no, that's why I'm asking you. And I said, great. See, that's my point. My point is you have been my student for going on 30, 35 weeks, right? And I've presented the world to you and you can't figure out what my political persuasion is because I've just taught you the truth. So here's my answer to your question, Andrew. I'm an American, just like you. And he smiled, walked away and said, I thought you'd say that. Chapter 17 of your book is entitled Logan, open brackets, the barbaric YAWP, and you write, and I quote, In his letter to me, Logan had written that I had taken a short-sighted ninth grader and infused him with the dead poet's mantra. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can't change the world, end of quotations. Robert, with reference to Black Lives Matter, could you please talk to us about the power of words and ideas in a rapidly changing world? Um, yes. Um, I believe that in uh, one of my books entitled Whitewash, which is a trial. I, I, the main character is one of the 12 jurors and he's, he's, uh, he's having to decide if this politician has, um, has incited a riot by, by, um, 
by castigating his opponent, who was black, and using um, vulgar language, racist language. And at the beginning of that book, I quote the New York Times uh, opinion editor, David Brooks, who said, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but he said that we now exist in a world where words are, can, are, can be weapons. And, and those words that are weapons, they, they have to stand up in a, in a court of law. You can attack people with words. And he was referring also to the, the whole social media. Um, you know, um, I know that a lot of Americans respond to Black Lives Matter by saying, well, all lives matter. And to which I say, and I, I say, well, you're right. All lives matter. Brown lives matter. Black lives matter. Italian lives matter. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Human life matters. And, and recognizing the value of human life is the most important thing that you need to take as you grow older and wiser as an adult. That, that the, the gentleman who is grabbing your luggage and putting it on the plane, that this person needs to be t- spoken to and treated with dignity. And, and all people need to be. As a matter of fact, I would teach the kids um, the theme of the movie Forrest Gump. And uh, I heard Winston Groom, the author of that book, say on NPR, National Public Radio, he said, you know, Forrest Gump wasn't really smart, but you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. All you have to do to be a good person is to treat people with dignity. And that's what Forrest Gump does. Um, And the um, film that I taught my freshman and I taught Logan, The Dead Poets Society, the main character, John Keating, who is his English teacher, explains that to the kids that, yeah, you know, mathematics and business and and, uh, uh, engineering, medicine, all of those things are very important to to society and to human evolution. But love and poetry and sincerity and courage, the things that I open this interview with as the invisible things I teach, those are the things we stay alive for. And so I would look at Logan and I would look at your audience and say, so what is your verse? What, what is it that you stand for? Um, I stand for Black Lives Matter. I stand for Lives Matter. Whether those lives are in Africa or in Scandinavia or in Taipei. Um, and, and we are see, we see too far too much, um, the decay of that attitude, that the attitude that all people need to be treated with dignity. Um, you know, one of the things that in an earlier question you asked me uh, where Gretchen was talking about how teachers, she felt that the teacher wasn't being treated with respect. That's, you know, that's another problem. I, I mean, ultimately, my parents struggled with that. Um, I didn't talk to my father for a couple of years because I was a teacher. I was just a teacher as if that is something below the status of, 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 a, of a person. Uh, you know, I, I needed to be something bigger than that. And it wasn't really until, I think, until my father actually um, saw me in 1998 on stage on live television 
become the county teacher of the year, San Diego County teacher of the year, um, that it just hit him that, uh, okay, wow. Um, uh, this is, this is the noble profession. I just didn't understand. And, and it's not that he didn't understand when, when my parents were born in the depression, I mean, they money mattered, uh, Every, every hotel my mom went to, she stole the soap, you know, because you never know. It could have a, we could have a shortage of soap, mom, you know. And I'd go to their house and I'd see soap from all the holiday inns and all the places. I said, mom, what are you doing? You're going to be fine. You don't need to worry. But that's how they were. And, um, and my father always worried if he had enough money, if I had enough money. And I said, dad, <laughs> I'm doing fine, you know. Uh, Strangely, I should add, when I talk to teaching groups, I, I say to them, you know, if you stay the course in teaching, at least in, in the United States, and you retire, you know, you walk away with a pension. Now, you don't you don't see that in a lot of other businesses. Um, if you don't save it, you don't have it. But we have a teacher's retirement system. And, uh, you know, I can live comfortably because I put in 32, 33 years teaching at both the, at the high school and then another 17 years at the college. I hope I answered that one too. I know that was a long-winded answer. That's all right. In your recent essay entitled "Want to Know the One Class Masterclass Doesn't Offer," hmm. you write this, and I quote: "Public school teachers are demoralized. They suffer fools who censure them from discussing America's original sin of slavery." and Jim Crow laws. Politicians tell them not to say gay or discuss sexuality because they really believe teachers are grooming them to be sexual deviants. So teachers are quitting, not because they wish to, but because it is a survival instinct, in the quotations. Mm. Now, as you have clearly mentioned earlier, the United States is a polarized country, polarized by wokeism, polarized by critical race theory, polarized by traditional Christian values. Mm-hmm. Robert, please share with us one key critical quality a teacher must have to be able to teach in a public school in America today. And at what do you make of the recent Supreme Court rulings with special reference to the American social fabric that is shot through with much historical contradictions and injustices? Well, um, a couple of retired teachers looked at me one day. I was at a wedding and they said, you know, Bob, you, you wouldn't be able to teach in the classroom nowadays. Not the way you, 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 not the way you taught. Not, not the subjects and how you taught them. I looked at them and said, you know, I think you're wrong. I think you're dead wrong. Um, hmm. uh, I think the one quality that a teacher has to have um, is that they, they have to be able to, <clears throat> to balance um, the that delicate balance uh, in explaining history and English to kids, whether you're talking to them about race or sex or the social fabric. 
it, it is about balance. Um, <clears throat> for example, living in San Diego, we, um, we have, we have a lot of Mexican workers. We have a lot of uh, people from South America. And I would say to the kids all the time, I'd say, you know, California used to be their property. <laughs> we kind of took it from them. That, you know, so let's just remember that there's a reason why we call it San Diego. That's Spanish. Okay. I came from Brooklyn. That was not Spanish. Um, and those people that you see who are working on lawns and, and up in trees and, and, and working on roofs, these are, are, are men who are, who should be, uh, admired for their work ethic. Um, because those aren't jobs that any, none of you are thinking about doing. None of you are thinking about getting up on a roof and not with 90 degree temperatures and hammering, you know, tiles, you know, and your parents, they, they sure would like you to not have to, you know, do that kind of hard labor. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't respect the dignity of these workers. Now, whether the workers are black, whether the workers are white, whether the workers are, you know, whatever, um, uh, I would explain to them, for example, let's just take the Civil War, for example. The South is an agricultural, the Southern states are agricultural. In order for them to make a living, it is labor intensive. So their business model was to keep labor costs down. What was the lowest that you could keep labor costs down? Pay them nothing and own them as slaves. If you travel to the South, I tell my kids, the Southerners don't necessarily call the Civil War the Civil War. They call it the War of Northern Aggression. So you need to understand that for 250 years, that's how those people thought. Now, do they think that way today? Well, some of them do. Some of them still have racist attitudes. Some of them still view um, black people, brown people, or even some white people as inferior. All I can say to that is, I hope that if I've taught you anything, it's that there are no inferior people, except for the people who think people are inferior. Those are the people that, you know, they've closed their minds. You know, I tell you one thing, and I would say this to the kids, when you were in the Vietnam War and you were in a foxhole, you didn't give a dang if that guy in the foxhole was black or brown or white. You just wanted to make sure he had your back. And the army is utterly integrated. You'll find that if you go into the military, um, racism really pales there because it's all about, it's all about protecting the country and protecting each other, each brother and sister. They don't care what color you are. Um, and try to keep that in mind. When you go to college and you're going to, you know, or you're going to go into workforce, try to keep in mind that the primary thing you should do is care about the other people. And if you do, they'll care about you. I guess that's the best answer I can give because I didn't teach in Trump world. I would not, I, I would not have gotten up, Stephen, and ridiculed the president. Um, I would not have said, you know, he's wrong about this or he's wrong about that. 
I would have said, here are the president's policies. Um, and uh, for example, he, his, his policy was to not wear a mask during COVID. Okay. And what happened? He got COVID. Now he didn't wear a mask and he got COVID and he was very, very sick. Those are facts. Indisputable. You have to decide if you're going to wear a mask. You have to decide if you want to protect yourself from COVID. And that's kind of how I would have addressed things back then. Um, once again, you know, you're asking very tough questions. Um, and, and that's why it is so difficult for teachers in this world right now. Uh, I want to address the issue of sexuality, though, really quickly. Um, because um, there was one thing I would not put up with in my classroom. Uh, I would never allow kids to um, say, to turn to each other and call someone gay or uh, some other homophobic slur. I wouldn't even let them, a girl turn to another girl, a girl, I'll call her a bitch. I would say, you hold on. <laughs> that doesn't happen in my world. Um, that's the only thing that if you do that, that will make me mad, but it will also make me think less of you. And I found over my years teaching that I never had to, I never did a referral for discipline in 32 years. I just looked at a kid and said, do you want me? Do you want me to have to write a referral on you? Do you want me to think that li that little of you? Because I don't really want to think that little of you. I think you're better than that. So come on. And yeah, I, I had kids break out in tears and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Pachilio, I'm sorry. You know, um, that's how, if you care about kids and you speak to them like I'm speaking to you now, by the way, when I taught the kids, the uh, young people in the Teach for America program, these, these were all kids from University of Hawaii all the way to um, Columbia University. I, I would say to them, you hear how I'm talking to you now? That's how I talk to my students. And they, I go, this is my teacher voice. There is no other teacher voice. This is, this is me live. You need to talk like that to your kids. They need to know you're real, you know? And... <laughs> And the, the, the young people are looking at me and they go, so really? I go, yes, really. You know, and, and if they hurt your feelings, you got to say, you know what? That hurt my feelings. I mean, you know, I'm trying really hard here. I'm a young teacher trying to, trying to do my best. And you're not, you're, you're looking at your iPhone. You must not think that what I have to say is very important. So don't. Anyway, those are just a few things that I think about regarding sexuality and, and all of that. You know, when I taught Catcher in the Rye, um, Holden gets, it's, it's always interesting that parents get a little bent out of shape about Catcher in the Rye. And ironically, Holden Caulfield, the main character, is bent out of shape when he sees that someone has written the F word on the bricks outside of an elementary school. I, I mean, if anything, Holden Caulfield is representing those, their parent, the parents' values. He's upset that people would use this kind of language in front of young kids. Yet they seem to, because the word appears in the book, they're upset. Just like in when I taught Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and the, the, the N-word appears in the book. And of course it appears in the book because Jim is a Negro. And, and, and you know, the N-word is how people refer to them, people then. But, but... <laughs> as um, 
As the editor of the Washington Post, Eugene Robinson, who is an African-American man, said, Huckleberry Finn and Jim the Slave, that was my favorite book in high school because for the first time in my life, a black man was the hero and a father figure. And the white father was an alcoholic and an abuser. So I didn't have any problem teaching Huckleberry Finn. The title of our podcast is The Unexpected Butterfly Effect of a Great Teacher. The New York Times published on January 12, 2023, a piece by a technology columnist, Kevin Roos, entitled, Don't Ban Chat GPT in Schools, Teach With It. Hmm. He said, and I quote, one high school teacher told me that he used ChatGPT to evaluate a few of his students' papers, and the app had provided more detailed and useful feedback on them than he would have in a tiny fraction of time. Am I even necessary now? He asked me, only half-jokingly, end of quotations. Robert, in the context of our podcast theme, what do you think the role of artificial intelligence is in education? And, uh, and do you think that an artificial intelligence bot will one day replace a human teacher in a classroom? Well, I don't think that artificial intelligence uh, and, and an art artificial intelligence bot can teach invisible things. And that's what I taught. Now they, they can, I'm sure that uh, they can, an uh, artificial intelligence essay can be printed up about, um, to answer the question, is racism still significant in America? Which by the way, was one of the topics that I uh, had the kids uh, do a, um, a research paper on. Um, and I'm sure, that, you know, yes, it could spit out a, a very interesting essay with footnotes and source citations and all of that. Um, but, but, what does the student really think about that subject? Right. Yeah, you could, you could easily print up a paper that says racism is abated in America. It's really on the down. On the, on, the, on the downtrend and find another equally persuasive essay that said, oh, no, racism is just, it's gone rampant. I mean, the Trump administration has just, you know, unloosened the, 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 the racial bigots in America. You can find equally persuasive essays. So the question really is, what do you think? H how, do you, how do you read those two essays as a kid? And how does it shape your values? Um, I, I, I haven't had a, a lot of time to, to, to um, really give thought to artificial intelligence as a, a writing teacher. But I will tell you this. Um, when I would teach the kids, uh, this is going to seem like a very simple thing, but it's, it, is, it isn't. When I said to, you guys, to the, teacher, the kids, I would say, I'm going to teach you to think today. And here's what we're going to think about. I'm going to tell you that my favorite season of the year is autumn. And I'm going to give you three, three opinions about autumn. They're, they're opinions. They're not facts. 
And after I give you the three facts, the three opinions, I'm then going to lay out a couple of facts, factual things about autumn. For example, one thing is I love, I love how the leaves turn. Okay. And then a fact under that is, well, oak trees turn yellow. That's a fact. And after I, I got you to, to list the facts behind your opinions, I would then ask you, well, why does a yellow leaf, why is that, why does that, why does that uh, float your boat? Why is that, why, why is that so great? And when you answer the why, that is when you're starting to really critically think. So I would stop and I would, I would diagram the entire essay about autumn and then look at the kids and say, now here's what you got to do. You've got to pick a different season, whether it's summer, winter, or, or spring. And I want you to give me two reasons why you like it. And underneath that, two facts about that reason. And underneath that, two reasons why that fact matters. Now, think about it for a minute. I'm, ma- I'm making them right into in, almost into a diagram. But that, that's kind of unartificial intelligency. If, if that's a word, it's like, um, you know, you, it's so specific what I'm asking them to do um, that it's really hard to to just manufacture that. Um, for example, you know, a kid might say, well, guy, I love I, I love the winter because I, I love to ski. And I would say, OK, what what's tell me one fact about skiing that that you, that, you know, you know, that you really like about it. Well, I. I I look, I, I, I ski up in Mammoth and there, there are so many runs and it's, and I go, well, why is that so great? Well, gosh, you know, I can, I can go down, you know, I love going down a dangerous run, but I can also go down the easy runs with my sister and we can laugh and fall in the snow. You can't, you can't really mimic that so much with artificial intelligence. Uh, I think that teachers are going to have to figure out how to create, um, writing, um, um, like a, a writing game plan that that is you know more specific, so they can actually see the kids figuring out for themselves why it mattered that in the summer they see their grandmother. Why 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 was that a why why did that matter to you so much? Because artificial intelligence isn't going to tell you why your grandmother mattered to you. You are going to tell yourself why your grandmother mattered. Um, and I would also encourage those teachers to have everything done in the room, in the room where it happened, in the room with pencil and paper or pen and paper. And, you know, and it can be messy, but, you know, that's how you, that's the operating table. That classroom is the operating table. You, you open up their brain and you pull things out and you see what the heck's going on. Um, I will. Um, and so that's how I, I used to teach writing and teach thinking by breaking it down into, uh, into a structure. And then after they have the structure, I say, okay, now you can be eloquent. Now you can, you know, break off the structure and, and you don't have to feel like you're, you're, you know, you have to put one step directly in front of the other. But for first, I've got to know that you can think for yourself. Oh, I wish I could give you a better answer, but I'm not. Well, that's, right that's excellent. Excellent. <laughs> It's hard because I'm not really in the classroom now. And, uh, and uh, when I do get invited, um, um, it's, um, I, have to really, I have to really work hard because they're looking at me like, okay, we heard you're good. You better prove it, buddy. 
is the most influential person in your life and how do they impact you? Well, that's the first question you've asked me. That's really easy. My wife, Pamela. Uh, my wife, Pam, is, I mean, you know, you get the yin and the yang in life. Um, uh, she's very organized. She, she's, that side of her brain works great. And, and she, she has common sense and she thinks before she talks. And then there's me. And I'm in a, I'm in a motor and I, 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 my heart's right on my sleeve. And sometimes I, I, I don't think before I say something. And, and over the 36, 38 years we've been married, you know, I can't tell you how many times she said to me, think about this. But just the other day, Stephen, just the other day, she said to me, you know, Bob, I'm going to tell you a word that you need to work on. The word is rigid. You're too rigid. You, you need to be willing to change more, you know? Uh, I was complaining that tennis players, you know, back in my day, Jimmy Connors had a wooden racket. You know, and if you had a wooden racket, you couldn't hit the freaking ball 148 miles an hour, you know? And <clears throat> that, that's no fun. You, I want to see a rally. I, you know? She said, Bob, Bob, listen to you. You sound like an old man, you know? You need to not be so rigid. Times change. You got to change with them. So I can't tell, begin to tell you how much I admire my wife. She, uh, plus she puts up with me. Finally, Robert, please advise our listeners where they may find your book. It was never about the books. Well, it was never about the books is on Amazon as both a Kindle and in paperback as are all my books. Um, sometimes the only catch that's difficult for people is the spelling of my last name which is a P-A-C-I-L-I-O. It's that Italian thing, you know, it's, it's the ch. Uh, Al, 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 Al Pacino is not Al Pacino, he's Al Pacino. And I'm not Bob Pacilio, I'm Bob Pacilio. And so because they don't have to have spell my name, it ha it's a little more difficult to find books on Amazon. But um, uh, that's, you know, one way. Of course, uh, I... Sometimes I go on eBay and I see, I see books and my books are there too. And, and sometimes they're in Barnes and Noble. It depends on the Barnes and Noble. Um, Barnes and Noble can order any of my books. Um, uh, a person could walk into Barnes and Noble and say, I want you to order. It was never about the books. And it'll show up in a few days. Mr. Robert Pacilio, thank you very much for being a guest on this podcast. This podcast was brought to you by the Camgasa Challenge. We are taking a short break before we start a new season in 2024. The overarching theme in 2024 is genocide in a series of six episodes. The Genocide Podcast series is a partnership between the Camgasa Challenge and Democracy in Africa at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Democracy in Africa is a platform dedicated to building a bridge between academics, policymakers, practitioners, and citizens. The first episode is entitled Genocide, Why it is Important to Bear Witness, an interview with a daughter of Holocaust survivors and the University of Edinburgh Honorary Fellow Dr. Maria Chamberlain. 
Dr. Chamberlain will use the opportunity to talk to us about her recently published memoir, Never Tell Anyone You Are Jewish. It will go live in February on the 12th, 2024. As Arnold Schwarzenegger wants to say, I will be back. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.